Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus 16. Um, Here we go. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord. For he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a, the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine lake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did, they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time right now to worship with your people and to study your word. I pray that you would bless your word as it comes to our hearts this morning, that you would make us soft, that you would quiet our minds. Help us to receive the words that we need to hear this morning. Lord, I thank you that you have always provided for each of us. I thank you for the ways that you continually give us our daily bread. I pray that you would cause us to rely more and more on you and less and less on ourselves. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So as we've been studying in Exodus uh, these past few weeks, we've been looking at particular passages uh, that that show how God is is teaching the Israelites how to live into the reality of the freedom that he has won for them. And and like Alan has been saying through this series, it's, it's one thing to take the person out of slavery, but it's another entirely to take the slavery out of the person. As we see with the Israelites, they had been set free from Egypt. But their hearts, in many ways, were were still enslaved. And so it is with with our own hearts. We've been set free from sin, 
fully forgiven as, as surely as Jesus has risen from the grave. And yet something of our slavery still remains in us. We haven't yet learned to live in the freedom that's been won for us. And that's exactly what God is teaching the Israelites in, in the wilderness. And so this week we come to another episode in, in the wilderness journey with a crisis, or, or at least what seems like one. The first verse of our text tells us that it's been a month and a half since the Israelites left Egypt. And now they're in the middle of the wilderness, somewhere between Elim, um, the last oasis in the desert that they camped at for a little while, and Sinai, uh, in a region it calls the wilderness of sin. And the people began to grumble. In verse 2 it says, The whole congregation of the people grumbled the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Quite dramatic, isn't it? And it seems like a pretty unanimous complaint. There are other times where we see people segmented, where some are, are behaving themselves and, and others not so much. But here it says it's the, the whole congregation. All of them are grumbling together. And so if, if there's anything that can get people on the same page, it's whining about food, right? And so let's look and see what exactly they're complaining about. What or, or who are they grumbling against? And, and this is the third time since they've been in the wilderness that the people have grumbled. But it's the first time that the text doesn't explain the situation beforehand. It just says where they are and, and how long it's been and, and gets right to the, to the grumbling. But the first time they grumbled at the Red Sea when the Egyptians were closing in. And the second time they came to a place that, was, that had contaminated water and they didn't have anything to drink. And so they grumbled against Moses. But here in, in chapter 16, there's no explanation given for what's happening. They just start grumbling again. And, and so we presume that by what they, they're saying, that they've run out of food, that they're grumbling against the set of circumstances that they've fallen into. And we can look back a few chapters in Exodus and, and make some decent assumptions to, to back this up. Uh, when they left Egypt, there, there wasn't even enough time for their dough to rise. They left in haste, and much less have time to, to pack provisions it would make sense that by now their supplies were dwindling, that each meal was smaller than the last, rationed to stretch out as long as possible. And in the desert, they would have found nothing edible to add to their supplies. And so it would make sense that, that they've run out of food, and this is a genuine complaint. But the other biblical writers later on seem to disagree. In Psalm 106, it says of the Israelites, even after the plagues, in Egypt, even after the, the parting of the Red Sea, after they've seen these great things that God has done, it says, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to test in the desert. A wanton craving. This doesn't seem to be a picture of the Israelites starving to death, on the verge of death, but, but rather it seems like they're just discontent dissatisfied with whatever it is that they do have left to eat, and, and they're wanting more. And this discontentment makes the, the slavery that they were in before seem like the promised land that they're headed towards. It makes them want to, want to turn around and go the opposite direction, back to where they came from. Matthew Henry writes that, that discontent magnifies what is past 
and vilifies what is present without regard to truth or reason. None talk more absurdly than murmurers. But in reality, the, the slavery wasn't plentiful or luxurious by any means, like they seem to, to remember it. it. It was bad, but it was familiar. It didn't require them to, to trust anyone. But that's exactly what, what God wants for us. More than just hollow obedience, he, he wants us to be vulnerable with him, to open ourselves up, to trust and rely on him day in and, and day out. Instead of, of running back to the, the false security of the very things that he saved us from. They're things that, that might seem familiar and secure, but, but really they enslave us. And if we want to be free, we have to be vulnerable and we have to trust God, even in the uncertainty of the wilderness. Because the truth is, everywhere is unknown. We aren't really in control of anything not even those old familiar chains that we sometimes miss so dearly. But nothing is unknown to God. And so we, we can trust him, but it might take some work to, to learn how. So something else that we see is that the Israelites aren't just grumbling about a set of circumstances, but they've found someone to blame it on. When they, when they say, you've brought us out here to starve to death, that you is aimed at, at Moses and Aaron. The people don't really know God. They, they've, they haven't seen him or, or really even heard him speak. They've just heard from God what Moses and Aaron have said. Moses and Aaron are their, are their representatives before God. Um, and they've, they've seen these miracles that he's done, the, the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and, and, and even the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that's leading them through the wilderness. But from their perspective, those this could really just be like Moses' magic tricks or something like the magicians back in Egypt used to do, uh, except just bigger versions. Or, or maybe, maybe God really is out there somewhere. Maybe it was him that, that did all these things, but, but it seems like he's abandoned them now. And so they say, Moses has got us into this mess, so, so we'll blame him. But Moses and Aaron are quick to point them up the chain of command. In, in verse 7, uh, they say, For what are we that you grumble against us? And in verse 8, Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. They say, It wasn't us that, that brought you here. It, it was God. And, and that's true of all of our grumbling. There is no aimless grumbling. Because if God is really in, in control of the world, if he's really sovereign over everything, then, then there's no one else to grumble against. When we complain about our circumstances, who else are we complaining about, against other than the one who is sovereign over our circumstances? If we're upset about where we find ourselves, who are we upset with except the one who's brought us to, to where we are? Look what Paul says in, in Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. He, he places whether or not we grumble in, in the context of our relationship with God as his children. Because all grumbling, all complaining is, is really against God. It, it's symptomatic of our distrust towards him. When you're upset because your boss at work just expects way too much of you, because groceries are too expensive and your rent keeps going up for no reason, because traffic is moving slower than you'd like for it to be, or, or because life has, has just simply mistreated you. 
You're not just complaining into the void. You're not aimlessly grumbling. You're grumbling against God because you don't, you don't really trust that he will use those circumstances to better you for your good because our hearts are, are enslaved still to our own ideas about what our lives should look like, about what our circumstances should be. And being hungry in the wilderness usually isn't a part of it. But God uses the wilderness to teach us to trust him, to teach us how to be his people. And for Israel, I, I think it's, it's this very context of relationship with God that makes their grumbling particularly egregious. Look again what they said in, in verse 3. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. We have to remember all that's happening in, in Exodus and, and how big of a deal this, this statement really is. God hasn't just casually come to rescue these, these strangers he's found in distress and, and save them from some ambiguous bad guys. You know, Israel is, is particular. Israel is very specific. He has chosen the people of Israel to be his covenant people, to be the, the means of his mission to, to save the world and the Exodus is, is the beginning of that. All that God has done is, is part of this larger plan to, to redeem the whole of his creation. And so he's adopted this people Israel to be his own. He's put his name on them such that, that God's reputation among the nations of the earth is, is tied up with the people of Israel and what he's done for them. Brevard Childs explains it well. He says, If God made himself known in the deliverance from Egypt, then Israel's repudiation of this deliverance obviously struck at the very heart of the relationship. In short, the people's complaint is not a casual gripe, but unbelief, which is called into question God's very election of a people. God had, had fought for Israel. He, he stood between Israel and, and the Egyptians with his, his back to Israel, protecting them, and his face set against the Egyptians, judging them in wrath for oppressing the people that he had adopted as his own. And so when the Israelites say that they would, they would rather that God had killed them back in Egypt, it's like they're walking out from behind God and standing among his enemies. This isn't just griping and complaining about where they happen to be, about their circumstances. It's, it's a betrayal and a rejection of the one who had adopted them as his own, his own people, his own children. And you could say that the Israelites just don't, they don't really mean this. It's, it's just kind of rhetorical. You know, they're exaggerating. They're tired and, and hangry or whatever. Um, but I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that this is an exaggeration so much as it's a revelation. That their circumstances are, are wearing on them, for sure. But all that it's doing is exposing the slavery that still lies deep in their hearts. The wilderness is, is bringing out the worst in them. But it's the worst that was already there. It was already in them. It's only revealing that their hearts still belong to Egypt and need to be set free. And so it is with us when, when we find ourselves in the wilderness facing trials and, and difficult circumstances. What those circumstances are really doing is, is just dredging up what's buried deep in our hearts. Nothing seems to draw out the worst in us like that quite so much as, as being hungry. Um, that's, that's why I think fasting is such an important practice in, in the church, or has been in, in history anyways. 
The wilderness shows us what it is that we're holding on to, what we really count on, and, and proves whether or, not something that it, whether or not that something that we're holding on to can bear the weight of our lives. Just like in, in Jesus' parable that we studied a few weeks ago, the, the storms test our foundations. They reveal what we've really built our lives on, whether it's solid rock or if it's sinking sand. And so are you counting on making enough money to meet your own needs? You might never know for sure until you get laid off from your job and then your foundations are exposed. Is, is your happiness and your contentment in life based on, on Jesus and, and your relationship with him or is it really just in, in your comforts and your leisure to do the, the sort of things that you enjoy doing? It's easy to, to think it's, it's the former, but... The proof comes when, when that diagnosis at, at the doctor's office. Does, does it bring everything crashing down? Or can you keep walking in the Lord, even through the desert, even in the wilderness? Where does your hope and security lie? What do you trust in? Is it the one who rescued you from slavery to sin and death? Or is it something else that, that probably should have been left back in Egypt? I'm not sure we can really know the answers to those questions and, until we find ourselves in the wilderness. Because it's when we're tired and, and hungry that our grumbling will expose our hearts. And so we're here in, in the wilderness with Moses and Aaron, and, and they're caught in the middle between God and, and this people who have rejected him. Who, the people who have said that they would rather be slaves in Egypt than be his people. And, and how does God respond? God is intent to continue the work that he began of setting Israel free. He knows that it's a long work eradicating the remnants of slavery from the hearts of a stubborn people, but he's set on seeing it through to the end. And so in his grace, God gives Israel exactly what it is they think that they need. He says he'll give them quail for, for meat in the evening, and, and he'll give them bread with the morning dew. But notice the reasons why that he gives. In, in verse 6, Moses and Aaron say to the people, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. There's a fair bit of uncertainty here uh, when it comes to the quail. Um, it, it seems like this is kind of a, a one-time thing. Uh, it happens one other time in, in later on in Numbers chapter 11 when the people start grumbling again, but that's a whole other story. We won't, we won't go there. Um, but it seems like the quail comes, comes once, that, that very night. Um, and, and then every morning after that, there will be bread. And, and the bread is, is the focus, the main concern of the text hereafter. And God says, first, I'm going to remind you what I've already done for you. I'm going to give you the quail so that you will know it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So that you'll know that I saved you from Egypt. But then, I'm going to keep saving you. Day after day, I'm going to show up and, and give you what you need. Pulling the, the remnants of slavery out of your hearts, little by little. Teaching you that I am, am trustworthy. That unlike anything else you've, you've ever known, I can be counted on. Because, he says, I heard your grumbling. I, I know your hearts are still chained to the things that enslaved you. And I intend to set you free. 
They've seen God's power in Egypt, the plagues and and the Red Sea, but now they're going to see his heart in the wilderness. They're going to see that, that he won't abandon them, that he won't forsake them, but he'll care for them and, and provide for what they need day after day. They will be his people, and he will be their God. But there's a particular way he said that he's going to go about this, this process, um, that he's going to teach this, this lesson. And we see in, in verse 4 that it involves a test. He says that he's going to rain bread down from heaven, and the people will go out and gather it. And the reason he gives is that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. It's worth mentioning here that the idea of, of law here in this verse, it's not like a big like capital L law. Um, the, the covenants of the Old Testament, the covenants from Sinai hasn't happened yet. We're, we're before that in the story. Um, but here is something a little bit, a little bit lighter. It's kind of like, like teaching or, or instruction. Basically, it's, it's a test to see whether they're, they're going to listen to what God says, whether they're just going to follow his instructions or, or not. And I think that, sounds, that still sounds a little bit scary for us because we generally have a pretty negative idea of, of tests. Sitting for hours with a number two pencil and a sheet full of little bubbles to fill in, and at the end you get that, that number that seems to determine your entire self-worth, whether you pass or fail, whether you're good enough or not. But that's only the perspective of tests from, from the view of a student. If you ask a teacher what testing is for, then you'll get a very different picture. We're not given tests to, to prove our worth, but rather to show what's inside us, to show what areas we've, we've mastered and, and which areas still need a little bit more learning. And that's what God's doing here in the wilderness. He isn't determining Israel's worth to see if he wants to keep putting up with them. He's refining them, digging the slavery up out of their hearts, teaching them to be free. And I think there's a a real assurance that that it's good for us to be reminded of here. Yes, God uses circumstances in our lives to test us, but it isn't because he's still making up his mind about us. When we are in Christ, his, his mind is made up. We are his beloved children, purchased, adopted, and set free by the blood of Jesus, and, and nothing can change that. But in these trials, God is, is set about the work of teaching us to be free. There are no conditions to be met. If we don't pass the test, he isn't going to give up on us and, and pick somebody else. He's just going to keep teaching us and keep teaching us. And and so one day, when in the resurrection our flesh is fully redeemed, we will be perfectly free. But until then, we will often find ourselves in the wilderness. And so I want to tease out of this text what what seems like a rhythm of of teaching and testing. First first a lesson, and then the quiz to see if, if the lesson stuck. Teaching and testing, back and forth, one after the other. Um, but, but all of this is given this one specific purpose. In, in verse 12, God says again, Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Uh, and this, this theme, knowing Yahweh, knowing the Lord, is, is a huge theme throughout the book of Exodus. And I wish we had time to chase it down. But, but just about everything that God does in the entire book of Exodus is, is tagged with, So that they will know I am the Lord. 
That, that seems to be the problem in Exodus. And, and I think that's the root of the problem of the slavery in our hearts is that we don't really know God. That's the reason they, they needed to, to learn was because they, they knew something about him. They had seen what some of the things that he had, had done. But there's a difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing them. Being God's people. And that's what these lessons are, are, and tests are, are all about. So you will know the Lord your God. And so the first lesson comes in, in the fact of God's provisions. He meets Israel's needs by feeding them with the bread from heaven. In verse 14 it says, When the dew had gone up, there was, not, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And we, we get a little more information about, about what this is in, in Numbers, um, or also in verse 31 of, of Exodus and then in Numbers 11. Um, it says it was like the seeds of, of coriander, which you might know better as cilantro. Um, but it was also like bdellium, which is a resin that, that comes from tree sap. Um, but then it also says it was like, like frost and fine and, and flaky. So like, like seeds, like tree resin, but also like frost. So if you have any idea how that works, uh, let me know. But it's pretty clear that it was also it was like, some, like nothing else the Israelites had ever seen before either. Uh, when, they, when they go out in the morning and, and find it, they say, what is it? And then it says, because they didn't know what it was. Makes sense enough. Um, so Moses comes with the explanation. It, was the, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. He, and he explains how this whole process is, is going to work out. And this in itself is, is incredible, really. Everyone will go out in the morning, at, at, least, at least one person from every household, and they'll gather up an omer for each person in their tent. Um, an omer is, is a little bit more than two quarts per person. By, by our measurements. And so they, they gather up some of this stuff and then they, they bring it to, it seems like they bring it to a measuring jar to see how much they had, they had gathered, um, to see if it is an omer or, or, or more or, or less. But, but however much they had taken, they put it in this jar and it ends up to be exactly an omer. Whether they gather a handful and stick it in there or whether they gather a bucket full, somehow it, it always measured to the right amount. The mechanics of it are complete ministry. It, mystery. It doesn't make any sense. And we, we don't know how it works, but, but it seems like it, it did. It reminds me of when Jesus is feeding the multitude on the mountain. Um, and he just keeps tearing off, the disciples just keep tearing off pieces of bread and fish and giving them to people. And, and it never seems to, to get any less. They never, never run out. And, and so, since this, this works in this like mysterious, miraculous way... It doesn't matter whether you come out with your, with your whole family from your four-bedroom tent with a white picket fence and you gather up all you can, or if you're just a, a widow trying to, to scrounge up just enough for all your kids. Either way, you, you will have enough. It all measures out to, to an omer, the same amount as, as everyone else. And, and they were promised that it would be the very same the next day, that God would, would show up again day after day and, and provide for his people, and, and that was the lesson, that God will care for them, that they can count on him because, because that's who he is. That's what he's like. He's, he's trustworthy. So that's the lesson, but then, but then here comes the test. So after you get your, your omer, your, your jar of, of 
flake-like stuff for the day, and, and you take it back home to your tents, the question is, do you eat all of it? Do you trust that God will show up again tomorrow with, with more food? Or do you keep some back and try to, try to ration it out as a, as a backup plan, just, just in case God doesn't come through the next time? Maybe you've heard stories of, of children that come from abusive homes and they'll come to school and, and it'll be lunchtime and they won't eat all of their lunch. And, it, and it's not because they're not hungry. It's, it's not because they're just too picky and don't like what's being served. But, but oftentimes they'll eat some of it and they'll try to pack away the rest to, to take it home. And, and the reason for it is that they, they don't know if there's going to be food when they get home whether that might be all that they'll have to eat in, until lunch tomorrow, or, or if it's on a Friday, that might be all they have through the whole weekend until Monday. And so they try to, to save it and, and make it last as, as long as they can. And we, we would see that. We would see a, a kid in this situation with, with sadness. It would be heart-wrenching to, to look on that. And I think that's exactly how God sees our attempts at self-preservation under the guise of responsibility, of, of being good stewards, we, we scrape and scrounge and, and try to take care of ourselves, always making sure that, that we'll have some stored away for, for a rainy day. But we really just look like scared kids who, who don't know if, if dad might drink away all the grocery money or if he might just not bother to feed us tomorrow. It's like we're in survival mode never able to trust that, that God will take care of what we need, not believing that he, he won't let us down because he's a good and loving father. But, but when we trust him is when we can finally be free, not fearing for the future, always looking out for ourselves, but, but living boldly and living generously in, in the confidence that, that our father will never let us down. That he will always be here tomorrow to give us our daily bread. And that's what he's trying to teach the Israelites. But then there's an, another lesson, I think, here in, in the way in which the bread is given. If we look at verses 9 and 10, it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. There's some stuff hidden in here that we've got to dig for a little bit. That, that phrase, come near before the Lord, is, is very particular. It's, it's technical, liturgical language about, about worship that comes from the liturgy of the tabernacle. Um, the last time you guys heard me talk up here, I preached half a sermon on, on that word. It means to, to draw near and come before the Lord. It's the, it's the same word that, uh, that we, the same root that we get the word for, for an offering or a sacrifice. But, but here it's, it's a verb, come near before the Lord. Because the, the sacrifices that, that the Israelites brought in the, in the tabernacle system was, were the means that God gave for his people to draw near to him in, in worship. But... But then also notice how, how Moses gives these words to Aaron. Moses doesn't speak directly to the people, but he, he tells Aaron, 
go say these things to the, to the people of Israel. And I think that's important because Aaron's going to be the high priest here in, in a little bit, just a few chapters later. He's going to be the one who's responsible for, for Israel's entire system of worship in, in the tabernacle. I think what we see is that this scene is being set up to look exactly like that. The whole congregation of Israel is, is gathered together, all assembled in, in one place, and then Aaron, this high priest figure, comes and, and invites them to, to come near before the Lord. And this, is, this is tabernacle worship before the tabernacle even exists. And, and then what happens? Well, the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh, appears in the cloud before the Israelites. These, these promises have, have been made. Moses and Aaron have, have said that, that God would provide for, for Israel. He would meet their daily needs. And now it's, it's God himself that gathers his people, that invites them to come near before him and, and appears in the cloud to stand behind that promise. God shows himself to his people he says, I, I will give you bread so that you will know that I am the Lord your God. The lesson here isn't, is that God isn't just giving the Israelites what they think they need. He's using what they think they need to give them what they really need. He's, he's using the bread to, to give them himself. He invites them to, to come near, to be in a, in a trusting relationship where they are his people, and he is their God. And 40 years later, when, when Israel stands on the edge of the promised land, Moses is, is giving this one last speech before he dies. It's, it's the whole book of Deuteronomy is this one speech. And he explains what was happening here 40, 40 years back in the story with the manna. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, it says, And you shall remember the whole way, as you go into the promised land, you shall remember the way that your Lord, the Lord your God, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Yes, God is giving them bread to eat, but, but the point is that in receiving the bread, they'll learn, they'll, they'll realize that the bread isn't the thing they really need. When, when we grumble, we're complaining to God to try and, and get what we want from him. But what we really need is, is just him. And that's exactly what, what this last test is all about. God taught them to trust him for their daily bread, he, and he tested them by, by seeing if they would try to save some for tomorrow. But God was also teaching them that what they really needed was himself. And then he gives them this test that is the Sabbath. And so on the sixth day, they, they've been picking up this manna for, you know, the majority of a week now, and, and they go out to, to pick it up and gather it like normal, but only this time, when they gather their handfuls or bucketfuls or whatever, and they put it in the jar to measure it, it's not just one omer per person, but it's two omers per person. It's, it's twice as much as they've had these, these last five days. And, and they don't know about this part yet. God told this to, to Moses and Aaron, but he, but he didn't 
explain this to the people just yet. And, and so they don't know what's happening. They don't know why they've got all this extra bread, but, but they know they're not really supposed to have extra. They're just supposed to have the one omer. And so they take it to Moses. And they're probably a little worried about what's going to happen. Um, and Moses sets them at ease. He says, it's okay. This is, this is what God has said because tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And so, so he says, cook however much you like and boil it, bake it, whatever you want to do, and then set aside the extra for tomorrow. And the next day, he, he tells them, eat what you set aside yesterday because that's all you're going to have. You, you won't find more to gather today. And so this, this paragraph in the text is, is the very first time the word Sabbath appears in the Bible. It's used as like a verb that means to, to rest or cease, just in other contexts, uh, like when God rested on, on the seventh day in, in creation. But this is the first time that it's the noun, Sabbath. It's a thing in and of itself. Um, and, and this is wild because the, the law hasn't even been given yet. But here we already find the Sabbath. Before God ever told the Israelites, do not murder, he gave them the Sabbath and told them to rest. And so God is, is teaching them how to live into their freedom, how to trust him and, and be his people. And so he uses the Sabbath because it's, it's one of the Bible's biggest pictures of, of what exactly that is. It's a picture of what humanity was made for. Because our, our work and our vocations are, are good. But we were made for more than just our labor. Our, our, our leisure and our recreation are, are good things, but we were made for more than just worldly pleasures. Our relationships and, and our families are, are good, but we were made for more than just each other. God has made us for himself. And our hearts will forever be restless until they rest in him. And the Sabbath is, is a picture of that. Ceasing, resting, trusting that the world will keep on spinning without our efforts. Trusting that we will find all we need in the Lord. That we will have enough tomorrow. If Israel was invited to cease from their striving and, and rest in God then how much more are we called to rest in Jesus and the work that he has finished for us? Jesus said that, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he himself is our rest because he has secured the reality of that which Israel's Sabbath is only a picture. He has made a way for us to have exactly what we were made for, life with God. And the way that he did that was by giving us himself, by living perfectly and, and dying willingly for us. And he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, you who have spent far too much of your lives laboring in chains building monuments to the very things that held you captive. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So really quick, before we finish up, uh, let's have a look at those test results. They're not great. 
Israelites are slow learners, and, and that slavery is, is very deep. And so there was a daily test, and the bread came every morning, and then there was this weekly test on every seventh day. On day one, they botched it. Verse 20 says, but, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. That's usually what happens when we don't trust God and we try to take care of ourselves. Our very best efforts breed worms and stink. Well, okay, so how about that weekly test? Was Saturday any better? Not really. On verse 27, it says, On the seventh day, some of the people, okay, not, not terrible, just some, not all of them, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? And so then he teaches the lesson over again, tells them how it's, how it's going to work. And then the next day comes, and, and there's more manna to pick up, and, and, and the test comes again. And so initially, they failed the test, but they'd get another crack at it. And in verse 30, we find just a glimmer of hope. It says, so briefly, so the people rested on the seventh day. The, the testing worked. They, they learned the lesson. And I think this can be an encouragement to us, too, because we often think that it's, it's all or nothing. That either we, we trust God completely and rest in him perfectly with, with every part of our lives, all at once, or, or it doesn't matter at all. But guys, Jesus is gentle, lowly, in heart. And yes, his work for us was, was once and for all. We have been fully forgiven and, and fully freed, but he still knows our hearts. We, we learn to trust little by little, one, one area of our life at a time. We learn to turn over to hands more capable than our own, to, to trust them to, to Jesus. And, and we've been justified in Christ, surely and, and definitively but we are, are still being sanctified. And the good news is that we have a good and loving Father who will see that work through to the end. Verse 35 says, The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. God remained faithful, providing for his people day by day until the very moment when his promises came to pass. He gives us our daily bread here in the wilderness until that day when we will feast with him at his table in the new Jerusalem. One last thing, in verse 32 it says, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Tell your kids about how God's been faithful to you. When he's providing for you in the wilderness, get out the jar and, and store some up. Write it down, keep something to remember it, and, and teach your kids, your grandkids, about how God has been faithful to you in the wilderness. It won't keep them out of, out of their own wilderness. They'll, they'll still have to learn to trust God themselves too. But when they're taking one of those tests, 
one of your stories just might have the answer that they need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are are good and gracious, that you hear our, our grumbling even when it's a betrayal, even when it's unwarranted and we're just dissatisfied, we're just discontent. Our lives aren't, aren't look, living up to our expectations of, of what we wanted for them. But Lord, help us to trust that, that you're working in the wilderness. That you're using these trials. You're using this suffering to teach us who you are. To teach us that you are, are good. That you love us. That you care for us. And you're trustworthy. That we can, we can count on you day after day. And Lord, as, as you provide for us, Lord, help us to see that, that you're not just giving us the things that, that we need. You're trying to give us yourself. You're trying to give us what we were truly made for, this, this life together with you. Because that's what Jesus came to do. That's what Jesus came to win for us. Not to just set us free from our enslavement, but set us free unto life with you. Lord, remind us of that day by day as you provide for us in the wilderness. We pray in Jesus' name.